0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: And now Christmas Miscellany with the RTE Concert Orchestra and special guests. A mix of new and archive recordings from this annual event at the National Concert Hall. The writers include Olivia O'Leary, Moncom McGann, Paul Howard and the late Ivan Boland.
2: Christmas carols, that ever there were, the one I dislike most is Oh Holy Night. Yes, I know, everybody else loves it and I can hear the disapproving tuts even as I speak. I think it's just too adult, too operatic, too over the top. Even some of the words, like our dear Saviour's birth sounds so patronising that, for me, they destroy the sense of awe that the song is supposedly trying to create. The best Christmas carols, it seems to me, are the simple ones, the ones that can be sung by children. Away in a manger, Silent Night, Mary's Boy Child, We Three Kings of Orient Are, Once in Royal David City. And just before my French friends go on the attack over o Holy Night, which was originally French, what about beautifully simple French carols like Il est né, le divine enfant? Maybe it's the carols you sing as a child which remain most precious. We children in the Borough's choir would look up at the Black Stairs Mountains as we hurried into the church on Christmas morning. Almost always there was a cap of snow or heavy frost on the tip of Mount Leinster, enough to make us feel we were having a white Christmas. And when we sang Angels We Have Heard on High, we knew that the mountains, in reply, echoing back their joyous strains, well, they were our own mountains, and we'd hit the chorus with gusto. Our choir mistress was a lovely young teacher in the school, and we'd have done anything for her, but even she couldn't stop us, galloping through the glorias, Hitting the last excelsis Deo, a whole bar ahead of the congregation, or the harmonium. We thought we were great. So did the parish priest, who loved the simple old carols. So did the congregation, full of our proud parents. My mother fought a one-woman battle to keep Christmas a simple and religious feast. Even now, I can't say Xmas. It'd be like stabbing her ghost with a knife. She liked to keep the emphasis on God, so we had no Santy, just St. Nicholas, who delivered presents from little Jesus. What did you get from Santy? Our school friends would ask. You mean from St. Nicholas, who delivers presents from little Jesus, we'd say. <laughs> and they'd stare. No, what'd you get from Santy? Not for us, the lovely, glittery cards with holly and red robins, we sent only holy Christmas cards with nativity scenes, Madonnas and fat babies and shepherds and stars. My mother's favourites were the Madonnas by the Spanish painter Murillo, almost all of whom had dark circles under their eyes. (laughs) Now, that's a real young mother, she'd declare, having had eight of her own. Later, when I visited galleries like the Uffizi in Florence, I realised that our holy pictures were examples of great European art. But as a kid, I mourned all those forbidden sparkly robins. Things were tight at home with eight of us children, so stressing the spiritual rather than the commercial side of Christmas sort of suited our circumstances. Christmas would be made special by carols and simple traditions and all of us being together. However, I remember one Christmas, I was about eight, when I desperately wanted a typewriter. It wasn't on my bed on Christmas morning with all the other presents. I kept checking with my mother and running upstairs all day in case there'd been a late reindeer delivery. (laughs) But by evening time, the bitter truth was dawning. Maybe you didn't always get what you wanted. Maybe St. Nicholas, who delivered presents from little Jesus, had to look after other, more deserving children. Worse, to judge by the disappointed look on my mother's face, maybe I had failed spectacularly to understand the real message of Christmas. Still, that message survives. A few years ago, my sister sat 25 of us down to dinner on Christmas Day. Afterwards, we sang songs and carols around the piano, And then it was time to go. Suddenly, we heard a voice. My shy little grandniece had retreated under the dining room table hours earlier to play with her toys, well hidden by the overhanging tablecloth. Oblivious to all the listeners, she sang, Away in a Manger from Beginning to End. We stood there, and we listened to the story of Christmas, Not just the New Testament story of the birth of Christ, but the simple miracle of birth and new life, of the very survival of the human race itself, and all sung by a small child.
3: Ireland's most underestimated philosopher, and I think it's fair to say shaman as well, John Moriarty, writes about his upset as a child at seeing how the lapwings would fly away from him whenever he drew near. But it also gave him comfort to notice how they'd approach the house at night to take advantage of the richer feeding ground near near the byre and the haggard. As a child, he imagined that if they came so close then surely the angels of heaven might also. Not always, of course, but in the depths of winter, when darkness clad the land and the other world draws near, especially on the most sacred night of the whole year, Egil Nullig. Moriarty described Christmas Eve as a night of wonders, in which the light of the highest heaven was in our house. He imagined the gates of heaven being flung wide open on this night. And the three wise men would ride their horses, which were taller than any that his family owned. They'd ride them through the yard wearing glittering vestments. And it didn't really take all that much imagining for him because in the morning his father would show him their hoof marks crossing the yard. He was was so caught up in the whole magic, in the wonder of it all, That one time he went out across the yard to the buyer, the cow buyer, to share his excitement with with those closest to them, the family's shorthorn cattle. But what he found inside shocked him. There were no candles in the barn windows, no holly decorated the walls, no crib had been carefully set up. There was no sense of the miraculous at all, in fact. He ran straight then to crow the to the pigsty, and to crow the gark, the hen shed. But again, there was nothing there. It was just darkness and normality. And it was devastating for him to realise that Christmas didn't happen in the barns and the outhouses. This idea that the animals were left out of all the excitement and the celebration was appalling. And since the animals were left out, he wrote, So inside me somewhere was I. This oneness, this fellow feeling with animals is something that runs really deep through Irish consciousness, through Irish mythology, and certainly also through the Irish language. Just look at some common boys' names, like Cúan, or Ushin, or Rónón. And so Rónón, you know, means a little seal, Rónón. Ushin, a little deer. Cúan, a little hound. And think about how so many of our mythic heroes, from Cúchollán to Finn McCool's son, Ushin, were the offspring of a relationship between a human and an animal. It was this key element. And even consider the Diocese of Óssery in Kilkenny, presided over by His Excellency the Bishop of Óssery. Where does that word Óssery come from? It's from the Irish ós, ós, meaning a deer. And that's where Ushin comes from too, ósín, little, little deer. So, Ossory was the homeland of the people who followed the deer, or the ancestor deity that was represented by the deer. So, so many words in Irish give testament to this, to our profound connection and fellow feeling with the animal kingdom. Like shetroch. Shetroch refers to the act of, of neighing or braying. Shetroch is also pronounced. But it's described also as the sound that horses make when meeting after a long absence. Or the insistent call of a mare for her foal. And it points to how in tune we have always been with the emotional lives of the animals around us. Or take dianach, dianach which means the lonely bellowing of a cow bereft of her calf. Dianach. The word acknowledges the anguish caused to the mother cow when we purposefully take away the calf so that we can get more milk, more cream. We felt her pain and we named it. Or the word for retirement, to be unyoked, to have the burden of the plough, reins and the traces taken off you. Which again shows a kinship with the animals that are around us, especially the domesticated farm animals. We felt this empathy for them, just as we also felt a sense of wonder for the wild, untamed animals that lived beyond the cultivated lands and moriarty's relationship with the lapwing was very different to that of the cows and the hens but these winter nights of advent when the kailach has beaten back all the life from the land is the time when these wild ones the pilibine miug the lapwings are in a age the field mice are in a the pine martens approach closer to our domesticated world and maybe moriarty was right that so too do angel navlachish, the angels of heaven.
0: I woke on the 10th of December 1979 with a vague sense of dread. I had been restless all night due to a scaldy heartburn and the various other discomforts of a late pregnancy. As I rolled myself out of bed, my swollen feet touched the lino and it hit me. Despite the fact that I resembled a small elephant and waddled from side to side when I walked, my baby, who was now eight days late, had changed its mind, and would not be coming at all, so I was just going to stay pregnant forever. Still, Christmas was just around the corner, and I had presents to wrap, a cake to make, and an old cupboard that needed to be repainted so that we would have somewhere to store the baby's clothes the fact that I'd given up on the baby ever arriving did not remove any of the urgency that I felt about turning an old cupboard with 15 layers of scabby brown paint into a modern-day work of art. So I put on my flowery, crimpling tent and decided to make the cake first, attack the cupboard while the cake was baking and deal with the presents while the paint was drying. I lined up the ingredients on the table, eggs, sugar flour, a couple of bags of dried fruit, red cherries in sticky syrup, and mixed spice. There was no butter. I'd spent the last of the week's housekeeping money, and I'd forgotten the butter. So I prayed to St. Anthony for 50 pence, (laughs) and I opened my purse. It was empty. My life was a disaster. Not only had my baby cancelled our appointment, now my husband would be devastated if I couldn't make him a simple Christmas cake. And then I remembered it the wedding coin. The one the bridegroom used to hand over with the ring, as symbols of all the gold and silver that he will shower on you forevermore. <laughs> Luckily, The special wedding coin hadn't been invented yet and my silver coin was legal tender. I found it in the jewellery box keeping company with the wedding ring that was now too small for my pudgy finger so I threw on a coat, trundled down to the shop and exchanged the blessed 50p for a pound of butter. When the cake was safely in the oven I decided to renovate the cupboard. It looked like it might take more than sandpapering to shift the layers of paint So I dragged it through the kitchen, walked it down the steps into the back garden, and set to with a bottle of paint stripper and a scraper. Watching the chemicals reduce years of paint to a bubbling, tarry mess, and then scraping it off was almost as satisfying as making the cake, except for the fumes. Even though I was in the open air, I kept having dizzy spells and having to sit down on the step. Still, before the daylight started to fade, my cupboard was scraped clean and I dragged it up the steps again and waltzed it into the kitchen for the first coat of green paint. When my husband came home that night, the flat reeked of turpentine and cinnamon and I had a pain in my back and a pain in my stomach, a nagging, cramping kind of pain that came at regular intervals. The kind of pain, I assured him, that you get from dragging a cupboard up and down the back steps. (laughs) And he believed me. Perhaps he too thought that we weren't going to get this baby, and that he was condemned to spend the rest of his life shackled to this huge raving loony. (laughs) Then the bump began to tighten and cause me to gasp, and my husband inquired if this might be it. No no i remembered seeing upstairs downstairs when sarah the maid was giving birth and it had involved a lot of screaming and thrashing about while holding onto the bedhead i was no way near that i moaned i'd wrap the presents now and worry about giving birth tomorrow <laughs> sometime after midnight we decided to seek medical advice and this turned out to be a very good plan as just before dawn our baby girl decided to join us in the world And the cake turned out well too, but never made it to Christmas because I ate most of it during the night feeds the following week. The green cupboard travelled from Fibsborough to the North Strand before finally settling with us in Wexford. The wedding coin was never mentioned again. I only hope it blessed everyone who handled it as much as it blessed us.
3: None in sending his beloved son. With Mary, Holden,
4: we should pray to God with
3: love this Christmas
4: day. You'd better go down straight away, the housekeeper said. He's not too good. He had a second blackout. He was out for nearly an hour. He's not too good. He was going to phone you before the second blackout. You haven't been down to see him for months. Where have you been? They took him to Ardkeen. Will you go down straight away? He's not too good. Is this a field hospital, Thomas? Have I been hit again? Bloody bad luck. I stand over the functional gridwork of a hospital gurney. We are in a busy men's ward of Waterford Regional. He has been hit again but not in the way he thinks. The war happened over 60 years ago, a war of ferocious tank battles. He survived the Falaise pocket, the flooded Dutch battlefields, the crossing of the Rhine. Now he lies disorientated in a very ordinary place. An affable young nurse has been paying him particular attention. You're all right, Dennis. You just had a fall. You'll be right as rain. Don't look so worried, Dennis. The familiarity of her tone is shocking. He looks at me with astonishment in his face. Do you know her, Thomas? He asks in that very confidential tone of an old Etonian. What he means is, do I know her family? Is her father one of the prosperous tenant farmers of his grandfather, the Duke of Linster Is she a beneficiary of the Wyndham Land Acts? In his growing dementia, he thinks that the men's ward is his house, now confiscated to set up a field hospital. He raises his arm and gestures sadly, hopelessly. I don't mind them putting up all these silly curtains everywhere, but the chaos in our sector is frightful. Can you restore order? At least In this area, they say he may snap out of his dementia, but that he may have to go into a nursing home to recover his strength. It is sad to see him struck down so forcibly, a man who has survived everything, war, dislocation, injury. I begin to tell the nurses about him. his surviving a direct hit from a Stuka bomber. His leadership at the liberation of Brussels... He's crossing the Rhine as the youngest colonel in the Allied army, a Fitzgerald from Carton and Kilkey, a direct descendant of Garret Moore, Garret Ogg, and the Patriot, Lord Edward. Suddenly, he asks, Is it snowing, Thomas? Is it snowing? No, I say, it's early summer. But he has heard a sound, a very particular sound, almost clairvoyantly, a split second before I hear it. It must be coming from a radio in the corridor or out in the car park. It is Hofstetter's serenade, the andante of a string quartet wrongly attributed to Haydn. It is a sound that Dennis associates with war, with Germany in the winter of 1945, with Göring's train, that he had commandeered as a guard's armoured command post. He was a victorious young allied officer on top of the world, capable just at that moment of wild gestures and a commanding authority. He had Goring's train fitted out, something monstrous made humane. And over and over again on his wind-up gramophone, he played the only unshattered vinyl that he possessed after his eventful journey across Northern Europe, a vinyl of Hofstetter's serenade. Now, laid low with the paralysis of yet another stroke, he was listening once more, and he was young, younger even than me, as young as the Tipperary nurse who was kind and even ebullient in his presence. Look, look, he's totally alert, he's listening. The young nurse smiles approvingly. We all share a rare moment of peace in an Irish hospital. The ghosts of Europe assemble around us. Sunlight of our keen is darkened, and in its stead a heavy snow is falling, falling on all the ruined cities, falling on all the misery and starvation that our young commanding officer can see from behind his blast-proof carriage window. How often did he describe this scene to me when he was in his early 70s, in better health, sitting beneath a portrait of his mother by the drawing-room fire, holding up a tiny glass of dry sherry. How lucky I was to be available, between lives just at that moment, suspended in a moment of early manhood, just as he had been. Time is strange. It delivers duties to us that seem to have been sent from heaven, or at least from places far away. Once that vinyl 78 was worn and gutted by heavy needles, he never replaced the record. I never heard him play it, only the memory of it, like the memory of snow falling on Germany in 1945.
5: Christmas is a variable, maybe more than any other feast or public festival. It changes its effect from person to person. You only have to take the quickest look at literature to see how true that is. If poetry and prose show us anything about that festival, it's that different people always have different Christmases. To Charles Dickens, who gave a celebrated personification to the day with his grim ghosts and his timely warnings. It was a miracle play and a moral allegory. It was the day Scrooge got his wake-up call. For James Joyce and the second chapter of A Portrait of the Artist, it was a family dinner, giving rise to a bitter family quarrel. But there are brighter accounts too. For Patrick Kavanagh, in his beautiful poem, A Christmas Childhood, it was a magical panorama of frost and high stars and open fields and his father's music on the melodium. How wonderful that was. How wonderful, he says in the poem. And he makes us feel it was. When I was a child, long before I read any of these, Christmas was a puzzle. I grew up in different countries, in different cities, in London and New York, both of which could put on a fine show of lights. Regent Street, Times Square, laying whole electric grids wasted in their attempt to outdo previous years. But for me, the mystery remained. I seemed to be holding different pieces of puzzle that didn't fit together. And it wasn't that I didn't like the parts, because I did. I liked the music spilling from snowy corners and alcoves of ordinary streets and I liked the idea that Holly was finding pride of place after its exile in the cold woods. I enjoyed the food, the gifts, but still something never came together. And then something changed. Something that made me understand that to be part of a festival, you have to participate in it. Which is what I did simply by the fact that my first child, the first of our two much-loved daughters, was born on Christmas Eve. And somehow the fact of that occasion and that intersection brought together for me the dignity of birth with the mystery of nativity. And when we brought this small child out into the post-Christmas frost and sparkling cold and brought her home, I began to understand the mystery even more. In the days after Christmas, in the aftermath of that season, I would go out in the first few weeks of her life to feed her in the hour just before dawn. It would be dark, with a hard January bite to the air, and there was always wonder in seeing the darkness and the frost disperse in the small warmth of a child and the light of her nursery. But there was something else as well. Always in those first moments of dark and cold, as I went down the corridor, I could look out our window and see the lights scattered here and there in other windows. And every one of those windows, I said to myself, has to mean a new life. Every one of them promised the solitary reunion between a mother and a baby in a ghostly hour. And we were all alone with the miracle and we were not alone. And every one of the mothers behind those windows, I thought, just like me, joined their ordinary experience to the mystery of the larger one. Here is the poem I wrote about that moment. It doesn't name Christmas, but it does inhabit it. It belongs to those magical and irrecoverable weeks of cold and dark. When there was a new life in the very season that particularly honors the hope and grace of new life. It's called Night Feed. This is dawn. Believe me, this is your season, little daughter. The moment daisies open, the hour mercurial rainwater makes a mirror for sparrows. It's time we drowned our sorrows. I tiptoe in. I lift you up wriggling in your rosy-zipped sleeper. Yes, this is the hour for the early bird and me when finder is keeper. I crook the bottle, how you suckle. This is the best I can be. Housewife to this nursery where you hold on, dear life. A silt of milk, the last sack, and now your eyes are open, birth-colored, and offended. Earth wakes, you go back to sleep. The feed is ended. Worms turn, stars go in, even the moon is losing face. Poplars stilt for dawn, and we begin the long fall from grace. I tuck you in.
6: bought a new coat for Christmas <laughs> and I surprised myself because it wasn't the kind of thing I would usually wear it was a shearling coat made from the softest warmest lambs wool. it was the kind of coat that I always associated with football commentators sitting in a freezing cold gantry for an FA Cup third round match at Huddersfield. Or TV detectives who drove Ford Capri's, called women darling, and roughed up suspects in laneways before declaring, you're nicked. It was comfortable to an almost supernatural degree. But it was also true that it provoked strong opinions in people. I walked into a Dublin pub one night and a man walking past me muttered a derogatory word beginning with W. (laughs) To avoid sullying the Christmas atmosphere, we'll pretend that the word was wonder. I can't say that the man was altogether wrong in his assessment because even I had a moment once when I caught sight of my reflection in a shop window on Clam Street and I thought to myself, who is that complete and utter wonder? (laughs) You see, the coat was suggestive of a certain kind of attitude. You might even call it obnoxiousness. It was the kind of coat that if you walked down the wrong Dublin street, you were liable to get punched in the face. But then, one Christmas in New York, I was reminded that fashion, like so many things, is nothing more than a matter of context and timing. I was walking up Columbus Avenue. It was three weeks before Christmas. I just asked a woman to marry me. And she said, yes. And if it looked like I was walking with a certain swagger, well, it's probably because I was. It was late in the afternoon and starting to get dark. All of the Christmas lights were on and a heavy snow was falling. We were standing at a pedestrian light at the junction of Columbus and West 43rd Street. And somewhere behind me, a voice said, hey, old school. The woman who had agreed to be my wife said, I think he might be talking to you. So I turned around, and there stood a man who looked a little bit worse for wear, and I noticed that he was smiling at me. He said, Man, I love that coat. I said, Thank you. He said, You're all the style, old school. You are all the style. You see, my coat was having its moment. It was wasted in Dublin. (laughs) This was a coat for a cold Manhattan afternoon that looked like a Christmas card. It was one of those rare times in my life when I felt perfectly centred. We crossed the road and we walked another block. My mind felt a bit swimmy. And there was a song in my head. Silver bells, silver bells, it's Christmas time in the city. Ring-a-ling, hear them ring. Soon it will be Christmas Day. And behind me, I heard a voice say, Hey, old school, give me that mother-flipping coat. (laughs) He didn't say mother-flipping. I'm paraphrasing. Hey, old school, give me that mother-flipping coat. From his take-no-prisoners New York tone, it was clear that the man appreciated my style in a way that was probably not healthy for either of us. So we quickly crossed the road and hurried up another block. But the man decided to follow us then, and for quite a considerable distance as well. We walked through the 40s and into the 50s, listening to a persistent background commentary in which my admirer mixed compliments with vague threats of violence. You're working it old school. You are working it. I want that coat, you mother flippin' mother flipper. (laughs) All the style, old school, all the style. We quickened our pace. By the time we reached 59th Street, it had gone quiet. We looked behind us. We seemed to have burned him off. A block or two later, we stopped at another pedestrian light. A man coming in the opposite direction. Jay walked across the road. And as he passed us, he looked me up and down. A second later, I heard a voice say, did you see the coat? (laughs) The man said, yeah, I saw the coat. I call him old school. I've got to have that coat. You want to follow him too? We took off up Columbus Avenue like two Olympic race walkers, (laughs) not even stopping at junctions. Weaving our way through the crosstown traffic with angry horns blaring at us, we speed walked through the 60s and into the 70s without daring to look over our shoulders. Finally, we reached our destination, a boutique in the upper 70s. The woman who had agreed to marry me went behind a curtain to try and address, and the manager of the place said to me, Honey, That's a lovely coat. (laughs) You know, it divides opinion, I said. People either want to hurt me because they hate it or hurt me because they love it. Well, she said, I love it. And by the way, can I ask you, is that gentleman with you? (laughs) I turned around. Our friend had his two hands pressed against the window, perfectly framing his face. ''Hey, old school!'' he shouted. ''Give me that mother-flipping coat!'' Two of New York's finest eventually arrived to move the man along. But I remember him fondly. Every December, when I take my coat out of the wardrobe and I put it on. My wife will come and stand behind me as I'm checking myself out in the mirror and she'll say, are you wearing your wonder coat tonight? And I'll say, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it really me? And she'll say, all the style, old school. All the style.
1: was Christmas Miscellany with the RTE Concert Orchestra and Special Guests, a mix of new and archive recordings, all recorded at the National Concert Hall in Dublin and produced by Sarah Binchy and Cleanna Nianlun. The readings were Away in a Manger by Olivia O'Leary, Angle Navlajas by Moncon McGann, December Babe by A.M. Cousins, Snow, Goring's Train and Hofstetter's Serenade by Thomas McCarthy, Night Feed by Ivan Boland and Christmas Coat by Paul Howard. The music was Away in a Manger, sung by Lisa Lamb, with the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney. Aran La Federocta by Lima Moely, sung by Cuevan Lee Flaherta and Seamus O'Flaherta, with the RTE Concert Orchestra, again conducted by Gavin Maloney. The Wexford Carol, sung by The Voice Squad. Hofstetter's Serenade, performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra, featuring leader Mia Cooper and conducted by David Brophy. Adante Allegro from Handel's Harp Concerto in B-flat major, featuring soloist Geraldine Doherty, conducted by Garrod Grant. And Silver Bells, sung by Lisa Lamb and Cormac Kenevy, with the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney. On sound were Kieran Dunn and Liam Mullen. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on
5: Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.